Good afternoon and welcome to the Institute for Government. My name is Nick Davies and I'm a Programme Director here. On behalf of the Institute and Burgess Salmon, who have kindly partnered with us on this event, thank you very much for joining us for a discussion on what's happened since Carillion collapsed four years ago. Carillion was the UK's second largest construction and services company, with 18,000 employees in the UK and global revenues of over £5 billion. At the time of its collapse, it held 420 UK public sector contracts, including for the construction of hospitals, highways and railways, uh, the maintenance of army homes uh, and cleaning in schools and prisons. The collapse of Carillion was driven by the reckless behaviour of the company's directors, but the impact it had on the public sector was also down to the government's approach to outsourcing. Ministers have admitted that approach had often been flawed and that the system of checks and balances had not worked as intended. Four years on, and as the new trust government picks up a procurement bill designed to make wholesale changes to procurement regulations, uh, this event will assess whether the government has learnt the lessons from Carillion. We'll be discussing how the government's approach to outsourcing has changed, uh, how successful post-Carillion reforms have been, what impact these reforms have had on government procurement during the pandemic, uh, and whether the reforms in the procurement bill will help, future, will help prevent future collapses of high-profile outsourcing firms. Uh, to discuss these questions and more, I'm delighted to be joined by uh, Gareth Rees-Williams, the Government Chief Commercial Officer, Kate Stedman, Group Strategy and Communications Director at Serco, Matthew Rees, Director of the National Order Office Commercial Hub, uh, and Sally Geyer, the Global CEO of World Commerce and Contracting. Following opening remarks from each of our panellists, I'll ask a few follow-up questions before taking questions from the audience. If you have a question for any of our panellists, please raise your hand if you're here in person or submit them using the Q&A function if you are watching online. Uh, and please give your name when doing so. Uh, you can submit questions while we're speaking and I'll try to ask as many as possible. Uh, finally, we will be live tweeting from the at IFG events account using the hashtag IFG outsourcing uh, and I'd encourage all those watching live to tweet as well. Right, without further ado, I'm going to hand over to our first speaker, Gareth Williams, Government Chief Commercial Officer. Nick, thank you and thanks to the IFG for organising this event. Um, so, yeah, four years on, it's gone in a blink of an eye, but a lot has changed uh, in that time. Um, i just make a couple of uh, uh, observations. Obviously, there's lots of inquiries uh, and investigations still going on into Carillion, so, uh, and the way that directors behave there, so probably best uh, sort of push those issues uh, to one side. I think of the 430 or so of the contracts that were being run by Carillion at the time, um, all but a couple were profitable. Um, but there's a lesson for us there uh, in that the two that weren't, two for very large hospitals, uh, those hospitals have still not been finished. So <clears throat> while that hasn't cost the taxpayer more, the taxpayer has not got, and those two out of 400 or so, has not got what it was hoping to get. So uh, we'll come back to how we've dealt with that part of the problem uh, when I talk about playbooks. Um, the immediate issue with, with Carillion that was really concerning was the way they'd financed their supply chain. If you remember, uh, there was a lot of talk about how many uh, vendors would, would be going to the wall as a result of that. In the event, although there were a regrettable few, 
not nearly as many as had, uh, as had been feared uh, suffered to the extent of, of, of going bust. But that prompted the first of our responses, which is to change the way we uh, handle prompt payment and supply chain finance. And we can perhaps come back to that uh, in Q&A. But the supply chain uh, finance initiative, I think, is sort of, um, for a variety of reasons, uh, uh, moved on. And uh, what we've achieved with our prompt payment policy, where we basically won't uh, award large contracts to people who are uh, paying their supply base in more than 60 days, has had a transformative effect, particularly in the construction uh, and outsourcing uh, sectors. Um, so that's a, a big lesson learned and landed uh, point. Um, the second is one on transparency. Uh, we're publishing KPIs now of what are called our gold contracts. These are our largest contracts across government. We're publishing now 90% of, of those, of those contract KPIs. And the good news is, you know, high 80s percentage of them are green. So actually outsourcing is, is working and the citizens, if they care to look on, on gov.uk, can find that information, see that these contracts are working. So we're delivering in a way that's good for the supply chain and we're delivering for suppliers, uh, for, for, the, uh, uh, for citizens. The big change though has been uh, in the work done on playbooks. And if you have not read the sourcing playbook, you should do. Uh, there are now four playbooks. We worked up with industry and the team who did all this work are, are with me here today. And this is what has been really revolutionary. We worked with industry over a period of months. Multiple companies lent in people to co-develop these playbooks, defining what is best practice in how we do outsourcing. And then we moved on to think about construction, which is actually where our problems with Carillion lay, not in outsourcing. Uh, we've also done ones on consulting and on uh, digital. Um, but these have been widely we re uh, welcomed across industry. And have, when you read them, you say, well, this is bloody obvious. This is uh, common sense. But it's all in one place, all written down. And both industry and government now committed to implementing them. So again, I would say that is a huge lesson learnt and actioned. So prompt payment, transparency, and playbooks. Three big moves, I think, all positive. Thank you, Gareth. Uh, I'm now going to move on to our second speaker, Kate Stedman, Group Strategy and Communications Director at Serco. Thank you very much, and thank you very much for um, having me here um, today. I'm, I'm sorry I'm looking a little hot. It was a bit of a race to get around all the closed, pedestrianised road and other areas. I thought, unfortunately, that the queue actually was um, to see Gareth at the event, but I'm told... <laughs> told it's for other, other, other purposes. Um, but no, it's a real honor to be here in all seriousness and um, with the fellow guests and Gareth with you who are, is a giant of, of, of this world. And I think, um, I think sadly, I spoke at a similar event when the collapse of Carillion happened perhaps with you, which either means we're um, both really boring and stuck in the same um, role today, or we're really passionate about what we do and we believe in what we do. And certainly um, I know it's, it's the latter. Um, I think the way the discussion points were phrased for today's session, I just wanted to challenge slightly because I think it put the onus very much upon the government. And I think what Gareth has hopefully um, made clear in his opening remarks, and which I want to echo, is that in this regard, it takes two to tango. And it, this was not a, a failure of government. Government needed to improve its procurement processes, but certainly the private sector were at fault here. And we know that it wasn't the only company where there were some unhappy practices um, going on. 
And that's before we even get on to um, auditing and regulation, which for, for obvious reasons I won't go into in detail, but I think we've seen ways that we can improve the system there as well. The one thing I would mention, however, was that despite um, the Carillion, um, the, the real issue with Carillion, and despite this not being totally isolated, as, as Gareth said, it were, was due primarily to its construction business, and I think that's important to bear in mind really low margin contracts where there's no room for error and something we must all avoid and be careful of going forward as well as excessive risk transfer which yes the government put on suppliers but suppliers willingly accepted so both were at fault um, in this regard. I, d I do think however the important thing to remember is, is two things. Firstly that government did an amazing job at having a really secure contingency plan in place so that very few apart from these hospitals Gauss referring to, very few services actually failed and the government must be commended in that regard. And secondly, I think we must be careful not to malign a whole sector with what happened in the past. And as I'll come to talk to you in a second, there have been significant transformation undertaken. And I think it's also, though, the case that where we see competition, um, we actually commissioned an independent, completely independent piece of work from Capital Economics, which shows that in the majority of cases, um, when public services are put to competition, that's not necessarily outsourced, I think that's a different matter, that savings of between 5 and 15% on average are made, whilst most often having no discernible impact on quality and often an improvement. So I think the private sector and outsourcing does bring value, and we mustn't throw um, the baby out with the bathwater um, in this regard. I think it's also really interesting when it comes to the general public. Um, again, we did some independent polling in this regard, and if you read the media or listened to certain political outlets, you'd think that outsourcing was thought of as evil by 99% of the population. In fact, the public say that um, over between 67 and 77%, depending if you count people who aren't, aren't, haven't made up their mind yet, they believe the government should work more with the private sector if it helps improve efficiency and improve quality, which our work show that it often and most often does. What's more interesting is 69% of those people actually voted Labour in the last um, general election. So this isn't actually the political controversy that you would think from reading some newspapers. So that's dealing with the past. Going on to where we are today and what's happened over the last few years, I think um, that really Gareth and his team and the government have to be commended to the highest degree for the really aggressive but collaborative way they have taken on these issues and dealt with them systematically, involving all of industry, all of sectors, all of the sector, and coming up with some really concrete solutions that, as Gareth says, through the four different um, playbooks, have really made some progress. We've now got publication of commercial pipelines so that providers are able to have visibility ahead of what's to come, better prepare for them. We have the market health and capability assessments to judge really whether if there is a capability in the market there to deliver services. Most importantly, perhaps in my view, these make versus buy assessments. So just because something's always been outsourced doesn't mean that it should be outsourced forever. And equally, um, just because it's always been delivered by the government directly doesn't mean that should always remain the case. The should cost modelling, we know, is really important to avoid those financial issues that we've seen with people underbidding contracts in the past, the requirement for pilots, and um, KPIs and risk allocation being particularly important. So I think we see that there's been a really significant um, movement as we look, as we look back on, on the last few years. Of course, perhaps now, most importantly, we see the procurement bill, um, whether or not that will survive the... Uh, 
the chaos of the House of, uh, of Commons at the moment and all the activity underway there remains to be seen. But certainly as a supplier, we really welcome it, not really as a revolution, but as the next sensible stage in putting into statute some of these really important reforms over the last few years. It's really the logical next step, and congratulations to everybody involved in that. I think it comes at about 113 pages. That's before you take into account the, uh, to date, 355 amendments that have been tabled. Mm -hmm. So I'm not going to go into huge detail, but I did just want to touch on a couple of the elements um, as is relevant to this conversation. So firstly, um, this Regulation 18, which moves... Um, moves uh, award of contracts from the, um, from two rather, the most, the most advantageous tender from the most economically advantageous tender. As we've spoken before, it's the end of the meet and onto the mat. And I think that that giving government departments the flexibility to look beyond price on a more regular basis is really important. The more detailed scope for preliminary market engagement, again, I think is really valuable to ensuring that suppliers know what they're bidding for and that the government actually tests their proposals. Um, so we, we really welcome that. The debarment register that makes it easier for government to exclude the suppliers, um, again, accountability could not be more important, which is part, again, of the transparency agenda that Gareth spoke to. We really welcome that, and we think there's probably adequate provision in there that um, exclusions don't occur on an unfair um, basis. When it comes to um, KPIs, and I know Gareth touched upon this, um, the, the new requirement for authorities to openly publish three K KPIs for each procurement contract. I, I think the only um, argument uh, we would make here, and I know I've discussed this with Gareth before, is that really to establish the best in class of public services, our view that it should also be a mandate for in-house provided public services so that we can really see um, quality of delivery across the board, not just across a couple of private sector contracts. Um, and I think finally, probably the final point um, I will make, or two, two more points actually, is that there's a little bit in there about opening up pr procurement for SMEs. I think the only observation we would make is that it seems to be rather, it's mainly optional rather than compulsory. And I think one of the interesting things to explore is we do a lot of business, for example, with the US government, where there you have small business set-asides and there are specific contracts that are wholly reserved uh, and mandated to be reserved for small businesses and those representing um, underrepresented groups. So I think there's a question about whether we go far enough here to open up the government, uh, government supply chain. Um, and I think finally, um, from my perspective, um, Constance, I'm waffling on here happily, um, the issue of make versus buy, I, I do believe and, um, that not because it's outsourced, but because the force of competition encourages everyone to innovate, encourages new ideas, gives the government choice, and the force of competition, it normally brings greater efficiency that we should consider making it a requirement um, for government departments to carry out make versus buy assessments, not merely making it optional. So I think just to conclude, um, the uh, events of Carillion were um, sorrowful both for the government and for the private sector, and the private sector has a significant role to play in taking responsibility um, for that. I think we've come a long way um, since then and I'm, I'm very pleased that we have. And we look forward to working um, in partnership with the government to continue these reforms. But congratulations to Gareth on his team for a really changed landscape that we see today. Thank you, Kate. Uh, now on to our third speaker, Matthew Reese, the director of the National Order Office Commercial Hub.
Great, thanks. Good afternoon, everybody. Um, so I'd like to um, group my comments around three strands of our work. Uh, firstly, our value for money studies. Um, and we obviously published on Carillion after it failed, but we also published a report on two of the PFI hospitals, uh, Middle Metropolitan uh, and the Royal Liverpool. So we've, we had a look at that situation right at the time. Um, I also want to talk about our insights publications and, and how they link to Gareth's team's work and then um, on our recommendations tracker. Um, so I'll start with the recommendations tracker, actually, because that, that's quite a useful way to put our reports into, into context. So you know, we, we're pretty much a running commentary on government's high-profile contracts. It's obviously a risk-based sample, so it tends to look at things that haven't gone as well as hope people, hope people would have liked. Um, but it's very encouraging. So we, we've, you know, I was just looking at the stats um, over the last four years. Uh, we've published 114 recommendations across 18 reports and 15 departments, all on the theme of contracting and outsourcing. Governments either implemented or in progress in implementing 91 out of 114. So, so that definitely suggests that that accountability cycle is, you know, as far as we're, we're concerned, um, an active and ongoing uh, process of, of continual improvement. Um, insights publications. I mean, you know, the, the context for this is quite often our reports are seen as the, the hindsight critic. And, and, and I think our insights publications are intended to be the proactive support. Um, so as Gareth had done with his side of promo, we've got our commercial lifecycle guide, which we put out last year, very much tuned into the playbook, um, really encourage that. In fact, we've cross-referenced quite a lot of the team's work there. So we're very much on, on, on the same spirit of uh, promoting good practice and really encouraging better outcomes. Obviously, all of that is coming through our findings from our reports. So what I wanted to do is pick up on three of those four strategic themes that we'd highlighted um, and just talk a little bit about what's happened since Carillion failed. Um, so on capability, as Gareth said, you know, lots of investment in the capability, the commercial function. I guess what our, what our audits are finding is, is that skill in the right place at the right time? And that, that's the real tough challenge for, for the team. Um, you know, there's much more collaboration across government but, but you know, it's one of those areas that requires continuous improvement. Um, and and when, we, when we see, you know, as we have occasionally, we see that the, the capability wasn't there. That's obviously a feature in our report. Um, transparency, um, you know, certainly echoing the points, um, you know, there's, there's been a lot of progress on transparency. Um, I mean, obviously, the, the kind of the crux of it from all our work through COVID was about the um, timeliness and completeness of, of statutory reporting. And, and obviously, there's, there's progress to make there. But it's really encouraging to see the more strategic use of transparency in the pipelines and the forthcoming work. So again, you know, genuinely, you know, improvement that, that we've seen since Carillion there. Um, and then thirdly, on commercial strategy, um, I mean, that, that's the one where perhaps we can go into a bit more depth on some of our specific reports. Um, so one of the major changes actually since Carillion failed was that PFI is now in a runoff period. So there's a huge change of procurement sort of strategy there. Um, we, we put out some work quite early on about how departments will manage that liability, what they do with the assets um, as, they, as they come out of contract. That's now being picked up by the infrastructure and projects authorities as a major focus. So again, recognising that that's a, a key issue for government. Um, but just looking across some, some of the other themes, so insourcing, um, Carillion's failure led the MOJ to have to insource some of the prison maintenance. Uh, so we looked at that early on. 
uh, I think the, the general consensus there was Carillion's performance was not good um, under, under, its, under those contracts. Um, Children in Custody was another report, not specifically a, a Carillion one, but whether those, those um, deliveries are high quality um, was, was really questioned. So this is about quality of accommodation for um, you know, young offenders and, and looking after them in, in, in care. So improvements needed on the ground in quality there. Um, community rehabilitation centres. I mean, I think that's been one of those pre and post Carillion um, themes where calibrating that commercial model and getting a viable commercial model in place has been quite challenging. Um, so I'm not sure that, that that one's been resolved completely yet. It's you know, a work in progress. Um, asylum and accommodation support is actually a really good example of competition. Um, actually a reset of some of the commercial uh, arrangements. So you know, echoing this point about competing this stuff, obviously there's a regional framework there. So, so you've got some regional franchises. So perhaps more opportunity for comparing performance across different regions, but definitely an outcome where procurement uh, through competition can deliver good outcomes. Um, Green Homes Grant, I think that's probably not quite such a positive one. Um, I think that was one of these ambitious local growth strategies, um, perhaps an early test of whether social value can, can deliver. Um, and unfortunately, with that one, a lot of people's hopes of having their insulation installed were sort of let down by, by a rushed implementation. So, you know, as with everything, that, that there's certainly room for improvement across that. Um, but I think there's perhaps a broader theme I just wanted to sort of finish on, which was um, why, what does government do to monitor its suppliers? Um, you know, we, we've looked at everything across the, the piece as well. So adult social care, we've got a regulator, you know, looking at financial monitoring. That was in response to the Southern Cross failure. Um, Gareth will know well we did a piece on, on the Greensill capital failure around supply chain finance. Um, I mean, that was a short-term working capital um, issue for, for government when, when, um, when Greensill failed. But again, no notice on that. I don't think that was something that was um, really government was caught by surprise. Fortunately, in that case, it wasn't a major financial consequence and, and it was pretty limited impact. Um, but outside of the, the procurement supply chain, obviously we look at other things like the energy supply market and, and the rail sector where private sector provision of services has been massively impacted by you know, implications for the citizens, but government needing to react. So you know, government is there on, as a sort of insurer of last resort. And I think I'm, I'm expanding that a little bit beyond, beyond the procurement piece, but it does show that government needs to be really tuned into the risks that are in its own supply chain. Um, so we, we've actually this morning published another guide, which again kind of showcases corporate finance in the public sector. We just put that out. It's on the IFG Twitter site, and we really get right down into the detail of the questions that senior leaders should be asking about the viability, the health, the prospects, the risk, the return profile when they get involved in transactions. Um, so we, we have a specific piece there on the responsibilities for the commercial function, but we go right across into asset sales and privatizations as well. So I'll pause there. Fantastic. Thank you very much. Uh, and now finally to our fourth speaker, Sally Guy, Global CEO of World Commerce and Contracting. Thank you so much, Nick. And uh, again, thank you to Institute for Government for putting on this event. I think it's so important that 
we are having these conversations. Uh, and I think, and I will preface what I'm about to say with the fact that, you know, the, the very fact that we're having these conversations means that there's a sense of progress and, and effort. I want to put, I know we're talking about the last four years. I think it's important, really important, that we put this into context. Government started outsourcing 40 years ago, plus. Back in the 1980s was when outsourcing started. And with that vision at the time, unfortunately, didn't come a focus on skills and capabilities and what was needed. Outsourcing is a very different animal to general contracting. And the need for a focus on contract management and that relationship management was absolutely and utterly missed for years and years and years. We maintained entrenched procurement behaviors in those outsourcing environments. So I think it's really important that we put the context of Carillion and the last four years and more into the context of the last 40 years. Uh, and if we've had entrenched behaviors for the last 40 years, it's not gonna take four years to mobilize, it's going to take a lot longer. It was actually back in 2014, and I know the National Audit Office uh, produced many different reports on the importance of contract management, but the one that really screamed out to me was in 2014. It related to G4S and Serco. Um, and the quote in that particular report, and I repeat it on a regular basis, is government simply cannot treat contract management as an administrative activity. Now, I know under Gareth's leadership, there has been a huge focus, and rightly so, on developing skills. It, that is going to take a long time, but it is really, really important that we do make sure that we address those entrenched behaviors, that entrenched skill set, which is not appropriate in an outsourcing environment. Um, I want to pick up on some other points as well that uh, I, I believe are really important in this context. So as a membership association, we're very fortunate. We represent both buy side and sell side uh, of the relationship. Uh, we do a lot of work with governments all around the world, um, but we also do a lot of work with private sector. Uh, and many of our private sector members are suppliers into government. And the picture, I, I was able to run a very quick poll um, over the last couple of weeks, and the picture is definitely still mixed. I think there is a sense, generally, that there has been some improvement over the last four years. The experience with the outsourcing playbook is variable. Um, it very much depends on where you are. Um, where you're supplying into. Different government departments take different approaches with that outsourcing playbook. Um, and so ensuring that there's a greater level of consistency in approach and application is definitely something that um, I understand that suppliers would be looking for. Um, certainly as far as the difference in experience of supplying into the UK government versus supplying into other governments around the world, I think there's a sense that it's very much on a par. Um, government can be uh, difficult to deal with, it can be great to deal with, it can be very fulfilling to be a supplier into government, but it can also be very traumatic as well, as I think um, most people would acknowledge. The 
Opportunity, as far as the procurement bill is concerned, is absolutely huge. And um, you rightly pointed out, Kate, that the um, government's filed over 300 amendments to its own bill, which means that it feels like it's lacking a vision right now. And it's really important that that vision is um, articulated again. Incorporating appropriate transparency is going to be really important. Um, and I think, uh, and I, I read with interest the Transparency Ambitions paper that was published in June. There's certainly ambition, but there is also a sense that there's a lot of talk, but not a lot of action in the context of ensuring that that aspiration is embedded within the bill. Um, and I think transparency, and Kate, you said takes two to tango, and I think that's absolutely right. And private sector really need to start embracing transparency as well. Um, that, you know, this, this requires levels of transparency on government side so that port large portfolios of contracts can be monitored and assessed and that data can be used to drive improvement. Uh, but that requires private sector to be very comfortable with that level of transparency. And that is a mindset shift that needs to be uh, approached as well. Um, on, well, and we can, we can talk about the point about profits, you know, for Carillion particularly, profit levels at one, of 1%, 1 not really sustainable. Um, and that is absolutely something that needs to be looked at and assessed. Um, I think fi my final point really would be, it was absolutely right to call out the reckless behavior of the Carillion executives. Um, that is true, and let's not underestimate that. Uh, but government needs to be, and I believe is, and it's wonderful, as I say, to have these conversations, to be humble about its own role and the way that it can change those outcomes in the future. Thank you, Nick. Thank you very much. Um, I'm now going to ask the panellists a few questions. Uh, remind those watching online to please submit questions using the Q&A and to please give your name and organisation uh, when doing so. Um, Gareth, I wanted to come to you first and actually um, pick up on a point um, that Sally made about kind of inconsistent uh, implementation mm -hmm. of the playbook. And when uh, we wrote a report two years ago looking at implementation of the playbook so far, that was what we found as well, that commercial directors were very aware of it, but there perhaps wasn't that deep penetration with all kind of key commercial staff in all departments. And I therefore kind of wondered what more you think the, the centre of government can do to ensure kind of consistent pickup and use of the playbook across central government? Yeah, it's a good point, and Sally's right to raise it. Um, I think we're, what we've got to remember here, and you know, this figure sort of comes to mind as we think about how we roll out the training that's needed for the new procurement bill. There's some, somewhere between 15,000 and 40,000 people who will let contracts in the public sector. But the fact that I can't tell you exactly what that number is is actually quite indicative of the problem of making sure that all of those people are working uh, in line with, the, with, with new policy. So I would, I would accept the point. It is inconsistent. Um, but I think we're making progress. I think Sally makes a good point that we're trying to change 40 years of behavior uh, in, in three or four since the playbooks came out. Um, you know, I've said before, I will continue to say, and very happy to you know, have, have this on your camera too, 
if there are bad examples where vendors are seeing uh, government agencies not complying with the spirit and letter of the playbook, then please you know, find a way of letting me know or letting my colleagues know. And I don't think this is usually um, mischievous or uh, intentional. It's because we haven't trained everybody and we haven't built the muscle memory that comes from these complex outsourcings, which any one individual contracting authority probably doesn't do more than once every 10, 15, 20 years. So we've got to accept uh, a degree of inconsistency, but nonetheless, we need to work uh, to uh, close it down. I think the other thing I would talk about on the subject of inconsistency is on contract management, which I know is, is dear to, to Sally's heart. You know, we've started on the programme to train contract managers and we've put 15,000 people so far through what's called the foundation level training on this. But less than 1,000 on the more uh, complex, more, more senior levels. And if you think we've got 10,000 contracts, that gives you an idea of how far we've yet to go. And that's just the training rather than building in the experience uh, that most private sector to private sector uh, counterparties would have on letting contracts and then managing them. And I think Sally's absolutely right to, to point that out. Um, we've really got to work on that. And that's what will then also, th those two things, the contract management and the consistency of how we let contracts through the paper are mutually reinforcing, because it will just drive best practice in an increasing way. Thank you. Um, Kate, I wanted to come to you next. You mentioned kind of problems with uh, low margins uh, and inappropriate transfer of risk. I wondered from Serco's perspective whether you've seen a kind of substantial improvement in government practice on those two issues in the last four years. I think we absolutely have. And I think that's the, the point of the should cost modelling um, in, in the playbook and, and of the elements on risk transfer as well. And we have, but as I say, it's both sides. So, you know, uh, providers came forward and knowingly bid very aggressively um, at very low margins, which high, has high risk for everyone. So as I say, it's, it's, not, it's not just the, the government here, it's both. But I think, uh, I think you know, the government lets about £240 billion worth of goods and services contracts, you know, um, there's, bound, there's always going to be something that's not quite perfect. There's, you know, let's be realistic. There's always going to be one or two things that, that don't go quite right. But, but on the whole, I think it does an extremely good, extremely good job delivering very effective services. And I think we are not seeing that race to the bottom now that we, you know, we were probably seeing five or six, five or six years ago that actually laid the foundations for, for this Carillion issue. So I do see that as a, a, a completely, completely different landscape today, actually. Uh, and Matthew, just to follow up on that, you said that the, uh, the government had implemented, I think it was 91 of 114 uh, recommendations. Um, have you also seen that it, the recommendations on kind of low margins and risk transfer are, are some of those that have been implemented? I mean, I, I didn't do that double check, but I mean, I was just reflecting actually on Kate's point. I mean, I think when you look at some of the, the, the pandemic responses around test and trace, you saw how impossible it was for anybody to predict volume. So government and suppliers are having to go into these contracts. Um, 
I think the iteration between those two reports showed some learning on the part of government. Um, but then you get into things around the hotel emergency um, quarantine accommodation, which I'm sure people who live through that would be, uh, be very much in despair of. But, but actually, government ends up picking up the excess costs on that. So, I mean, I think whilst there's genuine effort to be able to sort of put out that requirement and understand what the volume is, I think in times of uncertainty, government does end up bearing that, that excess risk, um, you know, and ultimately when it then steps in to secure service continuity, you know, gov government ultimately has that broader responsibility that no contract will, will really put a framework around. Um, and I think, I mean, that's ultimately the nature of a lot of this public service provision is, is that a private provider will, you know, may, as we have with Carillion, go bankrupt, but on the whole, government needs to resource the service continuity that will survive any corporate restructuring. Sally, uh, last question um, from me to you. Um, you mentioned sort of 40 years of entrenched problems in some cases, and I guess that reflects the fact that many of these issues are kind of cultural uh, and to do with practice rather than to do with the rules and regulations. And I therefore wonder, particularly given you know, the kind of continued rollout of the playbook and the further rollout that's going to be required with the new procurement bill, whether kind of with your global hat on, you've seen examples of other countries that have done a good job of changing entrenched cultural practices because it's and i know how hard that is and whether yeah. you've got any kind of thoughts on the, the on areas or countries that the government can learn from well there are there are some interesting examples i i wouldn't say that any jurisdiction has a monopoly on best practice at all um and i don't see that but uh, a few examples that i would pull out of the hat are um, you know, we've seen huge efforts in Australia, for example, to embed relational contracting uh, as a practice, and they've seen huge benefits from that, um, huge ben benefits in terms of innovation um, and also in terms of actually, you know, value for money as well. Uh, Canada did a major project about four years ago now they started where they recognised that that their own behaviours and their approach to risk transfer was actually inhibiting competition. Organisations just simply didn't want to bid for Canadian government work. So they needed to really transform the way that they were working. Uh, and actually part of that was um, completely uh, decoupling, if you like, their, their contracts uh, and creating a far more adaptive clause library that allowed government procurement professionals to pull together an appropriate contract based on what they were what they were procuring and the nature of the longer term relationship that's needed and i keep coming back to this point you know yes entrenched behaviors 40 years and i didn't say problems it was very much behaviors but um those behaviours in and of themselves have created problems. But the point is, is that you know, 40, 40, 50 years ago, we were operating in an environment where goods dominated. It was a, it was a, a world of goods. And procurement, therefore, um, and longer-term relationships were not really necessary. Procurement was all about the, the price at the point of contract. But when you consider the transition now and where we are today in this much more heavily outsourced environment, and an environment dominated globally by services, 
our contracting practices, and this is true for private sector as well as public sector, this is not um, any kind of condemnation on public sector at all, our contracting practices have not evolved appropriately to better manage the environment of services that we're operating in today. And that is something that we need to face head on. Um, and in fact, interestingly, you know, one of the comments that I got from one of the um, inputs when I asked the question about four years on and how do you feel about working with government, um, actually the influence from external legal, external lawyers representing government is, is and can be a very negative thing. Um, so I, I think we do, need to, we do need to accept a changed environment and with that, it's changed behaviors, changed skills, and changed approach to contracting, which is still lagging behind, but moving in the right direction. Fantastic. I'm going to come to, uh, to audience questions now, and I'm going to come to those who are here in person first. So can I please ask you to put up your hand if you have a question, uh, say your name uh, and where you're from, uh, keep it relatively short, uh, and make sure it is in fact a question uh, rather than a <laughs> statement. There's a roving mic. Okay, we'll come to this gentleman here. Thank you, Patrick King, CGI. Um, question for all the members of the panel. I've been involved in outsourcing um, contracting for 40 years plus. And one of the things I still find amazing is the number of contracts, particularly from Crown Commercial Services at the moment, where price weighting is so variable, regardless of whether it's an IT service, construction, PFI, or anything else, rather than the outcome. So you may see, even from the same department, two contracts valued maybe 30, 40, 50 million pounds. One has 40% weighting on price, the other will have 20%. And yet they are fundamentally more or less the same thing. And that tends to cause poor behavior from contractors, perhaps. Just wondering what people think about that. Gareth, I'm going to come to you first. <laughs> Um, thanks. So, top question, Patrick. It's so interesting, though, that the, the numbers that came to your mind on price weighting were 40 and 20. Whereas if you would believe some of the commentary, you'd say that price was 105% of the, of the weighting, or at least. And I think um, we've come a long way in terms of building in social value um, as a way of determining quality. Um, because I've used this example before, but if everyone, it, it, you know, basically, you know, our vendors are pretty competent people. They know what they're doing. This is the industry they work in. Uh, how do you distinguish between them? If we're not sufficiently granular about our quality uh, uh, assessments, then everyone's going to score 8 out of 10, and in which case price, even if it's 2% of the weighting, becomes the determining factor, which is not what we want. So we need to be better at determining the quality uh, and, and quantifying the quality in a way that is standable, upable in case of challenge. So I'm not so worried about the varying amount uh, on, on price. I'm glad that it, as say in your mind, it's usually less than 50. But I'm more concerned about how do we really specify the quality uh, points. And those have to come from the people using the services or contracting the services. That, you know, in central government, that would be our policy colleagues. And one group on one contract will choose you know, one set of uh, outcomes, and another will choose something different. Um, so it will swing, swing around. Um, but I think your underlying point about outcomes is absolutely the key one. 
and the procurement bill, and I think one of my colleagues, uh, or several of my colleagues, made the point that actually a lot of what we're talking about today is about practice, not about, or best practice, not about the regs. The regs will improve it, they'll make it slicker, they'll make it easier. But the regs per se are not, you know, are not really at the heart of your, your, your question, I think. We have to get better as a group specifying outcomes in a way that I think the private sector would be better at. Uh, and that comes down, but that then comes back to contract management. If we're specifying an outcome, we need to expect that the outcome we want will change over the life of the contract. How do we manage it better? And we're not yet good enough uh, at that. Sorry, longish answer, I'm afraid. Okay, have you seen that variance in kind of weighting a price and does it change how you approach contracts? Yeah, I, I, think, I think it's a great question. I think we do, and as, as to Gareth's point, I don't think we see it swing between 70 and 80, but we do see that move. And I guess the, first, the most obvious point really is that government does have a duty to taxpayers to ensure value for money and efficiency, right? So I, I don't think we should expect price to, um, to not be a significant component of that. I guess um, I would support Gareth's, Gareth's um, argument on the focus on outcomes, and we've been talking about different measures on that re relate, relating to social value and other things recently. I guess the most important thing for me is not actually the, um, the weighting of price versus quality, but it's that the quality that's submitted is deliverable at the price submitted. And I think that's more often actually where we go wrong, not the balance between the two, but actually it's a realistic price for the proposal put forward. And I think in the past that sometimes where the error has been made. But I think, I think it's a really interesting point. Good to do a piece of research looking at the, the, sw the swing between those. Thank you. I think I just want to add, I think that's absolutely right. Um, and, you know, I, there's in the past, you know, the, the sense that all suppliers are evil because they put in bids at such a low price, um, they, they promise the world and they can't deliver yeah. at that price. And so actually price, at, or, you know, the, the, the price paid at point of contract um, is or expected to be paid is markedly different um, to the final outcome, uh, and I think there are there are several points on that. But you know, outcome-based contracting, as, as as Gareth has rightly said, is requires a different level of expertise. It is very much about the management, and it's not about micromanagement. And one of the issues, and this again requires a mindset shift. One of the issues is that. There's a sense that government needs to, or again, not always government, but let's just use them as an example, that they need to um, articulate and determine the how everything is going to be done. Because of the fear factor involved that, you know, there's scrutiny um, on all of their practices, et cetera. And also the point that actually Matthew and I were talking about just um, before we started is that there are so many bad news stories, and I understand why the National Audit Office has to, to do that, but you, know, you, you build the sense of fear because you, all you're doing is learning from the bad things that go wrong all the time as opposed to the good things. And actually, we need to spend more, in my humble opinion, much more time focusing on the, the good outcomes and how we can think about replicating those and emulating them. But there needs to be a, a comfort around government contracting, not micromanaging the how, and really simply focusing on the what. But that needs to be accompanied by greater transparency and, frankly, honesty from the private sector about what is really achievable based on a particular bid and price. 
Thank you. I'm just going to take a question um, from online from um, David Stokes. Uh, and I'm, so he's asked, um, if there was another Carillion, i.e. a company consistently undercutting all other bidders in a desperate attempt to maintain its cash flow, would government slash industry spot it sooner this time? Matthew, I'm going to come to you first uh, on that. <laughs> I mean, I think what, one thing we've noticed is there's been a, you know, a real increase in the amount of resource that is going into, the, into this kind of analysis. Um, there's better data out there. There's better government monitoring. But, you know, how, how easy is it to predict company failure based on what is statu generally statutory reporting? It's really hard to say. I mean, no matter how, far, how granular you make that contract management reporting, in a sense, you'll probably miss it. You'd be even more likely to miss it because you're looking at contract level performance. But, yeah, I mean, I think for, for us, it highlights the need to have you know, good quality contract management and, and the right commercial understanding of the supplier base. Um, but, you know, there, there are, you know, there, there, we are in a period of economic challenge now. Um, and so it's something that should be higher up the government's agenda, I think, than perhaps at any time, certainly in the last, last few years, with, uh, you know, with interest rates rising and, and inflation hitting kind of input costs. These are, these are real factors that government needs to be mindful of. Gareth, I'm going to come to you on the same question, but I wanted to add a little bit to it as well. My memory of four years ago was that one of the issues also, and I think you mentioned the subcontractors, and fortunately not many of them went under, but I think for a little while government took some time to work out who they actually were because there wasn't great transparency of Carillion supply chain. So I guess to add to that question, do you feel that kind of the early warning systems are better now? And if another company did go under, would government have a better understanding of who their supply chains were? That's, that's really is the sort of the touch wood uh, question. Isn't it? <laughs> uh, thanks, thanks for that. Um, so yes, I think we are much better. I think we've got better risk management uh, approaches, way of thinking about things. I think we're more honest internally. I think uh, a lot of the tools that we used in the centre have been rolled out uh, more, more widely. Um, but um, we still don't have the sort of supply chain mapping that uh, uh, colleagues listening in who've perhaps worked in aerospace or uh, the automotive industries will be used to, but really detailed multi-layer supply chain mapping. We don't have that. Um, that's something we're working on, something uh, still for the future. Um, but I think it also there's, but I, I would just make a, a un, un, unravel a couple of comments. There's two aspects to profitability here. There's the, the aggregate profitability of contracts and how those add up to the corporate overall corporate result. But we've got to remember a lot of the, the time that Carillion went bust, a lot of other outsourcers uh, were unwinding a lot of let's say unhappy acquisitions, where they'd written off had decided that it needed to write off large amounts of goodwill. And that's what leads to the sort of the 1% profitability uh, type numbers that Sally talks about, which is clearly not sustainable. So the question is, what is the underlying profitability? What is the underlying contract profitability? And there I think we're, uh, we're much better, but we need to keep doing more. And to Kate's point, <coughs> we need to get tougher with uh, vendors uh, to make sure that they're providing that information in a timely way. And one of the things that uh, we do as part of our annual review cycle with, uh, with suppliers, and we're just kicking off the latest uh, set of that, is look at contracts that, were, that are already in run to make sure that a vendor is still meeting the financial tests on which it won it. 
Because that is actually the problem with Carillion. When Carillion won a lot of the, the, the large contracts that went wrong, these two construction contracts particularly, but the same is true for their other large construction contracts overseas, they would have passed the relevant tests. The problem is that their, their financial standing deteriorated during the run of a contract, back to contract management. Uh, that's, that, that, that is harder to, uh, uh, to pick up on. Um, so the only other thing I'd add to your uh, addendum, if you like, um, is that obviously we've been through COVID now. Um, we've swapped COVID for what's an inflationary uh, issue, both of which have, you know, create risk for vendors. It's been quite interesting. If you looked at the amount of distress you might have expected in government vendors due to COVID, I think we could look back and everyone, industry and the public sector, could look back with some pride and say, well, actually, we handled that well uh, with really relatively few uh, uh, insolvencies of, of, of the vendor base. And I think hidden behind that comment is a lot of behind-the-scenes work by both, both sets of parties, banks as well, uh, in order to uh, make sure the company stayed solvent through that process. So I think... Uh, We'll have to see how we get on in what is, you know, undoubtedly a period of inflation um, coming up to make sure we continue to do that and continue to spot the vendors that have got problems. And perhaps us spotting them before, perhaps even the vendors have realised that they have a problem uh, and, and hoping to get, get those issues fixed before they become a real problem. I'm going to go to another round of audience questions. Uh, if you have a question, okay, the two gentlemen here, we'll wait for the microphone to come, so at the front and then in the middle. Thank you. Uh, Ari Zaman from the Bloomsbury Institute, Higher Education Institution. I just want to pick up on the discussion um, about, uh, well, Carillion, but also in the procurement bill. And there was the Birmingham Commonwealth Games made a great store in terms of its work on procurement of being the first major sporting event um, to having to embedded a social value um, requirement into their procurement processes. So my question is really around how can the procurement bill, and you talked about SMEs, how can we particularly address more inclusive uh, approaches to procurement through this? Uh, I'm thinking in particular of women-owned businesses, I'm thinking of ethnic minority-owned businesses, where we know there's enough data out there to show there's an underrepresentation in those areas, and there'll be other areas as well. Do, do, drawing upon the experience of the discussion today, do you think that that's an area with the procurement bill that there could be more traction and movement on? Thank you. Thank you, and we'll take uh, one further question in the middle there. Uh, Tugendhat from Tussle. Um, I had a question for Kate, actually. You mentioned that uh, in the US they're much stricter about ring fencing contracts for SMEs, for example. I was wondering what else Serco sees as best practice outside the UK that could be could potentially be imported here. Fantastic, thank you. Uh, Kay, I might come to you first on that. Thank you. Uh, hours and hours of time to think. <laughs> I appreciate that. Uh, best practice outside the UK. Yes, so I mean, I, mean, I, I have to be honest, and I, I may have I've given a slightly different answer from Sally earlier in terms of international best practice and procurement. I have to caveat my answer with the fact that we operate really only in the UK and Europe, North America, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, Hong Kong, and a bit of the Middle East. So that, that, that misses out a huge amount of um, other countries. But I, I do think the UK is doing, um, actually doing a, a fantastic job when you compare it to that. And I don't want to mention necessarily specific countries where I see them 
uh, falling down. But I think levels of transparency, for, firstly, I think are really, really fantastic here and high, both with the KPI publishing, in the feedback one gets from bids, why people won, who lost, how the contracts are performing, all the rest of it, it uh, pipelines. Uh, I, I think that's probably world-leading to some degree. I think the only country probably who's ahead of that is the US, which obviously has a completely different system in terms of government procurement, where everything is open book. All your costs are open to the government. But as a result, it's highly regulated and probably quite expensive, expensive for, the government, for the government to operate. Um, I think, you know, in some of the other countries we operate, we don't get nearly as much insight into why government decisions are being made with, with contracting um, as we do um, in the UK. Um, I think uh, the ethics and morals of the, the UK, again, is probably above a lot, a lot of the other countries that we see. So um, in a way, I would say that some of the problems of UK procurement have been a victim of their own success in terms of maturity and really getting um, um, commercial, aggressive procurement capability that perhaps has gone, gone a little bit too far rather than the fact that it's way behind multiple other countries and has a long way to go. I actually think the UK procurement setup is, is probably um, one of the best in the world. But we, we, the, the social value piece is interesting. We're seeing that in different forms. As I said, in the US, it's much more mandated. Other countries are still sort of experimenting with it. Here, it's become sort of quite rigid in the 10% um, threshold. I think we'll, you know, we'll see whether that plays out as working or whether that needs amending in, in due course. But I, I honestly am afraid I can't give you hundreds of um, new ideas because I think actually the UK is in a pretty good, pretty good state as I see it. Zelle, I want to come to you next. I believe you're, you're also chair of the Open Contracting Partnership, which has kind of spearheaded international efforts to improve contracting transparency. And I wondered yep. your views on where we stand internationally uh, on transparency. Yeah, there's, let me say there's still opportunity here. And it is, it's positive to hear what Kate's saying. And I you know, take everything that you say, um, it's fantastic. Um, let's go back four years, though, that actually just over 40 of the 420-odd Carillion contracts were actually on Contracts Finder. So that's not transparent, in my humble opinion. <laughs> that, that leaves hundreds and hundreds of contracts that were not on Contracts Finder that we don't have the data or that the data wasn't available to the public or to, or to even to government on. Um, and so to the extent that progress has been made and efforts, and it is quite clear that efforts are being made, and it is, it's, it is really positive to see what's coming through um, the procurement bill. I think there's a, a level, and certainly the work I know that Gavin and the team have, have been doing, there is a level of nervousness that the original bold ambition in the Green Paper is not going to translate through into the final bill. And that, so, you know, that's just saying as it is, that, that is a, it, it, there's a level of concern. Um, the, I think this point of, you know, the transparency is absolutely critical. Uh, to the point about supply chains, and, and Gareth, you know, it was good to hear what you were talking about as far as that's concerned. Our research tells us, and this is um, at, a, at a global level, 74% of supply chain professionals don't have visibility of their supply chain beyond tier one. I mean, that's, a, that's an enormous statistic. We're quite good then. <laughs> <laughs> So it is, you know, we, we, there, there's definitely generally work to be done on ensuring 
that there is much greater visibility. Again, that comes to, to how private sector provide that level of transparency and visibility. Um, and of course, there's often a fear um, of sharing that data because there's a, a sense that somehow that supplier may be outwitted, um, shifted to one side for whatever, for whatever reason. But um, creating an environment of better transparency and data, 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 it's all about data. And I think to respond to the, to the original question, um, with data, we can ensure continuous improvement. But without data, it's impossible because you don't have a picture. You simply cannot act when you don't have that level of visibility. Gareth, I'm going to come to you in the conscious of time. So uh, but kind of, I guess, how would you respond to those concerns about the kind of the, the bill not including the kind of detail to meet the ambition on both social value and transparency that was in the Green Paper? Yeah, there's a couple of points here, aren't there? So, um, and it, you know, the bill is, 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 has moved from a state of, you know, we think well thought through regulation. I, would, I was going to make a comment about the number of amendments. Don't be fooled by that. This is quite complicated, uh, interlinked clauses. So if you make a change in one, then it flutters through the rest of the... I think there was actually half a dozen amendments that generated lots of edits. Anyone who's used to track changes will know that. Um, <laughs> So, social values is, is, you know, there's a political debate to that. Uh, does the government of the day feel, you know, price and value are most important, or do they feel that uh, social value is, it has, has a place? We'll have to see where the Houses of Parliament uh, come down on that one. So, at the moment, it's uh, a requirement to have a minimum of 10% of the evaluation on, on, on social value, and some have got much higher. And that's great. And we will start to see those contracts now coming through, uh, you know, their gestation phase and going into run, and then we'll start to see what impacts they've had. Um, and I think, it, you know, I think there's some really, really positive uh, examples there. Um, bear in mind, though, um, not part of the rules change because we were able to do it outside of the rules change, um, but what's called sub-threshold contracts now can be direct awarded you know, pretty much uh, to anyone. So if a contracting authority wants to uh, uh, encourage a particular, you mentioned VCCs or uh, uh, female-owned businesses, then below the, the, the threshold, 140 grand, they're able to do that without the sort of paperwork downside that Kate talked about in the States. Um, in the States, everything is open book. So there is a huge... Uh, uh, Excess, you know, government excess on, on that. You know, the phrase, you know, good enough for government work and all, all of that. Um, we've got, you know, a relatively small number of open book contracts. It's growing, which, which I think is, is healthy. So, as usual, the truth is probably somewhere, uh, somewhere in, in, in the middle. Thank you. And finally, just come to you, Matthew, for very brief final remarks. Sure, yeah. I mean, I think a lot of this stuff is things that we might audit once policy is implemented because we, we can't really get involved in that formation. But certainly the opportunity around data is huge. And when we talk to countries that are post-crisis that have got brand new digital systems, you know, there's some really good examples. Obviously, the UK, you know, it is where it is. I think there's, there's an opportunity there to create more consistent um, and searchable and, and interactive data for what is actually underlying at the moment. You know, there is data there. It's just very hard to put it back together. Um, so huge opportunities to, to improve transparency with hopefully modest investment. 
Fantastic. Thank you. So with that, I'm going to bring the discussion to a close. Um, thank you to our four panellists uh, for their really thoughtful contributions, uh, to Burgess Salmon for supporting the event, uh, and to all those who've watched today or listened back later. Uh, the Institute's next event will be tonight uh, at 6.30pm uh, and is on Unmasking Our Leaders in conversation with Michael Cockrell. Uh, so do tune in. Uh, and for now, thank you and goodbye. Thank you. Thank you.